is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is... Megan Bojarski. In this episode, we travel back in time to Walt Disney's childhood and hang out with a black sheep as we look at this black sheep of a movie from 1948, So Dear to My Heart. The very sort of basic plot summary, because again, this is one that I feel like not too many people have seen. It is available digitally for rental and available on DVD from the Disney Movie Club, but is not streaming on Disney Plus for some reason, even though I feel like it probably should be. (laughs) But just a brief plot synopsis from Wikipedia. Set in Indiana in 1903, the film tells the tale of Jeremiah Kincaid, uh, played by Bobby Driscoll, and his determination to raise a black wool lamb that was once rejected by its mother. Jeremiah names Lamb Danny after the famous racehorse Dan Patch, who a horse plays the role of Dan Patch in the film. Jeremiah's dream of showing Danny at the Pike County Fair must overcome the obstinate objections of his loving yet tough grandmother, Granny, played by Baloo Bondi. Jeremiah's confidant, Uncle Hiram, played by Burl Ives, and he is the boy's ally in his quest to race this lamb. Inspired by animated figures and stories, the boy ends up raising the lamb, taking him to the fair, and gets a special prize for the lamb for reasons that are not clear in the plot. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, this was one I had not seen before. I really didn't know much about it or really hadn't even heard of it before putting together the list of episodes for this podcast project. Megan, I assume that you ha- had somehow even less knowledge than that, if that's possible. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'd heard the name before, maybe. I definitely didn't really know anything about it until I started the research, at which point I found that, like, on the surface, there's nothing to talk about with this movie, but if you dig deeper, there's a lot to talk about with this movie. So despite it being one that I had not heard much about, I really ended up kind of clinging to this one as we were working on it. Again, this is kind of the not the reason I wanted to do this project, but this kind of thing was a reason I wanted to do this project because there is so much. We think of so much of Disney history as being Snow White and Cinderella and Mickey and Donald. And there's all sorts of other, I just want to say, like, I guess, like weirder or like just less well known things like this out there. And so even in the little bit I looked up of like what this movie was about, I was like, okay, this is going to be kind of a snooze. And it is, but there's still a ton of interesting things about it. So it's based on the Sterling North novel called Midnight and Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, obviously the name of the boy, Midnight being the name of the sheep in this. And it's set in the time period that Walt lived in Marceline, Missouri, which we will have many quotes talking about how much he loved Marceline, Missouri. And according to Walt, he said, quote, in this novel, I found the perfect story for a new kind of motion picture. 
I don't know exactly what he means by new kind of motion picture because like what's really interesting about watching So Dear to My Heart in chronological order is that this feels like Song of the South without the racism. Like it feels like the same movie. Yeah, in my research, I was finding a lot of people calling it like Song of the South Light, which might be part of why it's not on Disney+. Plus. There are people who found some racist elements in it, which are a little complicated and we'll talk about later. The story itself is pretty basic, but I will say it is kind of the most live-action Disney had gotten to at that point. That doesn't make it a new kind of motion picture, but it's a new kind of Disney motion picture, maybe? Because it's even even less animation than we saw in Song of the South. And I would say, in watching Song of the South, the most interesting parts of that movie to watch were the animation or the, the sort of hybrid scenes between the two. And here, you could almost cut out the animation entirely and still have the whole movie basically work. You know, the animation here is is basically illustrating the lessons that Jeremiah is learning from books is, you know, told to him in the form of an animated owl. We do also get to see Danny, the, the lamb, be animated as well in very cute fashion. And based on like the cover of the DVD I watched, like I almost thought this is about kids taking care of a cartoon lamb, you know, because they wanted to put animation somewhere on the, the front of the box. I was actually surprised by how much animation there, like that, when the animation shows up, I guess I should say, it goes on for longer than I expected. And there are some problematic elements kind of here and there throughout this movie that we will definitely talk about. But but on the whole, it, it it offers, I think, a lot of the same lessons of Song of the South, which again are, you know, moral lessons that we've heard from a lot of Disney pictures that we've talked about. Like I keep going back to Three Little Pigs and, you know, just the, the value of hard work and, and perseverance is like really baked into Walt's mentality. And I feel like that comes across very much in this movie. Like this feels like a Walt Disney movie more than it feels like a Disney movie in some ways. As we'll see with the research, this absolutely was a Walt Disney movie. He had his hands and his fingerprints over everything. But one of the things that was so interesting to me is he said that he loved the book and thought there was so much to work with and yet fundamentally changed it from the source material. So for instance, if you look at the original Sterling North novel, uh, which is pretty hard to find now, more on that in a little while. First off, obviously the sheep had a different name. Walt personally saw the racehorse Dan Patch and decided to change the sheep's name to Danny. The sheep runs away in the story, in both of them. But in the original story, that's basically the ending. Like, oh, they did all this amazing stuff, and then and then the lamb runs away. But the biggest kind of thing is, in the novel, the sheep goes to the county fair, and, you know, this little boy is so convinced that it will win first place. And in the book, it does. It, it's as simple as that. If you, if you love something strongly enough, you know, it'll win. In the movie, it doesn't, but then it kind of gets an award of merit for no discernible reason. So it's interesting that Walt kind of tweaked, especially the ending, to kind of give the lesson of, you know, sometimes you put all of your love and hard work in, and you don't win anyway, which is slightly undercut by the, you know, participation trophy of sorts that Jeremiah gets. It makes it certainly an interesting kind of film, because 
Walt did change so much about kind of how the story operates. I saw further down in our notes, you have, I think, an amazing insight into why that that changed. Because watching the movie, I, I hadn't made that connection at all. And I, I want you to get full credit for for being able to say it on the podcast. But but setting it up, watching it, I was like, oh, this is like a Rocky ending. Spoilers for Rocky. <laughs> We're like, he doesn't win at the end, but it doesn't matter because, you know, love was the real prize or, you know, whatever it is. Like he, he worked as hard as he could. And, you know, like that, that's what matters if you give your all. The lamb doesn't win. And I was like, oh, like that's, that's a cute way of being like, the winning doesn't matter because that ties into the grandma being like, you know, you care more about ribbons than you do about that lamb. And, you know, you're doing this for all the wrong reasons, basically, blah, blah, blah. And so, like, it, it, it does tie into the lessons of the story pretty well. But you made a connection that kind of blew my mind a little bit. So this is pure speculation. This film has a lot of, how, how am I going to put it, romanticized autobiographical parts for Walt Disney. We're going to talk a lot about Marceline in just a minute, but... Basically, Walt, when he was a kid, lived on a farm and decided that was like the height of human existence. And this movie kind of reflects that. So one of the points that I had made or that I was wondering about was if you can go back to our Snow White episode and think back on that. You know, Walt was so, so connected to Snow White. This was his baby that he put all of his time, effort and, and way too much money into and then it didn't win the awards. He was really expecting it to, you know, be the best picture, which still is not a thing that happens with Disney. And so they didn't get best picture, but he got the honorary Oscar. And so I was thinking maybe that's like the new ending to this was him trying to like console himself and, and pitch that in a in a better light of like, See, sometimes you can work hard and you don't win-win, but you get recognized for your hard work anyway, which is very similar to, you know, you don't get best picture, but here, have an Oscar with all of the little dwarf Oscars alongside it that Walt had back then. That's pure speculation. Oddly enough, a lot of our discussion of this is going to be pure speculation because the movie is very connected to Walt, but officially nobody says that the movie is connected to Walt. Like I said, I, I think that connection is is really smart. And I, I have to imagine whether it was like consciously intentional, it has to tie to that. Like there, it's too perfect to, to not count as part of that. I'm very excited for you to tell me more about Marceline, Missouri, because I know it as sort of, you know, Walt's hometown, even though he lived... He didn't live there for actually much of his childhood, but that's what he always talks about as his sort of quote unquote hometown. And I, I do know that there's the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, which is also obviously claiming the hometown status of Disney. I saw a bunch of Disney influencers were out there actually earlier in the year, a couple like a month ago as we we're recording this because they have like a museum and they were putting in some new stuff because of the they're tying into the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Studios as a way to drum up publicity for their museum and their main street, I'll call it. <laughs> so do, do you want to tell me more about Marceline and, and Walt's life there? One story that I didn't put in our notes that I just found really funny. So like we said, Walt lived in Marceline, Missouri for about five years. They moved, he and his family moved there in 1906, where they owned a farm. 
despite the fact that Walt really idolizes this time period, the farm did not go well. Apparently, Walt's family was not doing well during this time, but he was a kid and it was freedom and running around and animals. So he has held it really kind of close to his heart. Ironically, there are a lot of arguments that his father became a socialist while in Marceline, which is so opposed to who (laughs) Walt becomes. There's this kind of joke because, yeah, he lived there for five years. And frankly, I don't really remember much of my life from ages four to nine in that much detail, but he clearly did and filled it in with some dreams and imagination. There's a great story later on, and I'm jumping ahead of myself, where he was going back to Marceline and essentially, I think they wanted to name a swimming pool after him. And they talked to like the the mayor and the mayor was like, he lived here for five years. He probably doesn't even remember like where our city is. This is stupid. He won't care. And they reached out to Walt and he's like, oh my God, can I bring my entire family? Can I give you guys money? Can I like tell you th- that this is the best thing in my entire life ever? So he he very much kind of glommed onto Marceline despite, you know, shaky evidence that he should have been there. And it kind of became this fun thing where Marceline as a town was constantly surprised by how much he liked it. <laughs> there was another story, I think connected to that one, where he was staying with some of the town's residents and they were like, oh, well, he's never going to like it here. We have to totally renovate the house. We're going to get air conditioning put in. We're going to do all of this. And he got there and he's like, it's not how I remember it. They were like, but you're Walt Disney. Do you really want it to be hot? And he's like, that's Marceline. Marceline doesn't have AC. That's so funny. It's like, so basically Marceline is Walt Disney's rosebud. Yes. In in every way that counts. And it's it's so interesting too, because the movie has such a nostalgic tone for it. And that story about the air conditioning, it's like Walt's memory of Marceline is more important than the real Marceline at any given point in time. And so like, yes, it sounds like he has a lot of affection for the town over the course of his life, but it really is him being... I feel like a lot of times today we tie in nostalgia with like pop culture and things where it's like, oh, I'm nostalgic for that movie because I watched it so much as a kid, even though like maybe it's not the best movie, but like it's one I still really love or whatever. But I feel like there's maybe a little bit like when like the 80s becomes like fashionable again, it's it's not the real 80s. It's like everything is neon and like, mm-hmm. you know, teal and, and purple and, and all that kind of stuff that like the real 80s had sure had some of that going on but it wasn't it wasn't as aesthetically forward the way that like our imagined 80s is and like for Walt it just seems like it's sort of like that but with like the 1910s which is not a time period many people are have ever been nostalgic for even though this movie is actually part of a trend for that around this time, which I, I guess sort of makes sense. And, and sort of, you know, pre-World War II, or I'm sorry, pre-World War One, we're just coming out of World War II. So like, I, I can sort of see there being a desire to look back and be like, what was America like before we were involved in, in the world and things? But it very much feels like Walt is trying to keep Marceline exactly the way he wants it in his head. Yeah, and I think that partially because of the museum, partially because of his connection with the town, he kind of transformed it into the version he wanted it to be. And I'll I'll get to that, but he tried to make a living history museum there. So he really 
was concerned with preserving his Marceline. Mm -hmm. But just going back to the history really quickly. So his family moved to Marceline in 1906. During that time, his uncle was a train engineer. Those of you who know much about Walt Disney know that he very, kind of in this period, very much got obsessed with trains. And so you that connection, both in the movie and in, you know, the Disneyland, a lot of Disneyland that would be coming up. And even some of the upcoming movies are going to have kind of an emphasis on trains because he got so obsessed. But while he was there, he had a couple of like really big moments that kind of, I don't know, it makes sense in that time period of his life, but they sound like such big things because he was Walt Disney. Some notable events. He was paid to draw a neighbor's horse, which was the first time he was ever paid for his artwork. He saw one of his first plays, which ended up being Peter Pan, which we'll talk a lot more about in a few episodes. Also, fun fact, he went on to play Peter Pan in elementary school, so he he was really tied in with like him being perfect and happy there. And he also saw his first movie. So those are some of the events that we know were kind of these groundbreaking moments in his life that he did have there. But frankly, a lot of what we have is just quotes either from Walt or from his family members that basically say like Marceline was the end all be all for Walt and to some extent his siblings, although his brothers ended up leaving Marceline earlier than he did. So they didn't have quite as much of a connection. Some of the quotes, for instance, Walt's wife in Walt Disney, The Triumph of the American Imagination, says Marceline was the most important part of Walt's life. He didn't live there very long, but there was something about the farm that was very important to him. When he was kind of dedicating the town, he said, I have nothing but good memories of Marceline. It would be an honor to have my name on that pool. Marceline was my only childhood. So by his definition, when he left at age nine, that was the end of childhood. And he even went on to tell the children who lived there, you are lucky to live in Marceline. My best memories are the years that I spent here. So it really just kind of became this running theme that, you know, the world kind of fell apart for him after he left Marceline, which, you know, in part was because of the war years, because his family and stuff got involved in World War One. He lied about his age to get involved, which so many young men did at that time period. So he did kind of have that accelerated adulthood. But it is kind of this interesting point where, you know, these five years that for many of us don't really, I don't know, register that much. I mean, he's quoted as saying, more things of importance happened to me in Marceline than have happened since or are likely to in the future. Now, any of us looking back go, okay, everything about Walt Disney kind of started decades after this. But as far as he was concerned, those five years really kind of define his entire life. From what I remember of Walt's biography, I feel like after they left Marceline, like he started working basically. Like he was, you know, mm -hmm. delivering newspapers and I don't want to say like jobs that kids have because that's very unusual today. But like, I feel like I grew up in the age right after kids having newspaper routes were like a common thing. From what I remember, he was made to work because his family needed the money and not necessarily, you know, it wasn't and like, I'm an enterprising young man and I'm going to make my first dollar. It's, it was like, well, you have to go work because otherwise the family's not going to have a house. Mm -hmm. They were often not very well off in Walt's upbringing. And so like, I feel like that probably adds to 
his sort of rose color glasses when it comes to the time in Marceline, because it really is like his childhood. And then you think about how Disney sort of becomes so identified with childhood entertainment and with American childhood in general. And it it's kind of mind blowing when you think about it. Like in some ways, Walt Disney himself invented the concept of American childhood based on this five years of his life in Marceline. <laughs> like the idea that children should have like entertainment of their own, basically, and you know, that they should be sort of catered to in this way. Like I'm I'm sure there are larger social movements and and changes that uh, that sort of drive that as well but i feel like disney as a company is really tied into that and i I got the sense from watching this that this was maybe disney's first kids movie you know we've all the animation we've talked about doesn't necessarily feel like it's aimed at kids not that again not that it's most of the stuff in there isn't inappropriate for kids you know especially by the standards of the day and you know, it, it's certainly interesting to kids. There's a lot of gags and, and you know, physical humor and, and, and all the kind of stuff that, you know, kids of any age enjoy, I'll say. But it doesn't feel targeted to kids the way that So Dear to My Heart feels, even more so than Song of the South, I think. You know, you see trickles of it in part because they had Bobby Driscoll and Luanna Patton that they kind of had to fit into places and that made it easier to kind of cater to kids when you had to find a way to shove two kids into any movie. But definitely this movie, you see so much of Walt's idea of perfect childhood. And even though Jeremiah's granny is constantly getting on him, he basically gets to do whatever he wants whenever he wants. There's this sense of complete freedom and innocence and not having to worry about kind of the trivialities of life that is really connected to Walt's understanding of what life should be and what life in Marceline certainly was to him. And we see, especially in this movie, but we'll see it a lot in you know Disneyland and in future things where Walt is kind of trying to present his version of history, where we basically see him trying to like copy paste his memory of Marceline onto anything and everything else in the world. It's funny too, because I watching this, I kept thinking about Bobby Driscoll and Luana Patton just being randomly at the end of Melody Time for Pecos Bill, where it's like, we're telling this story about this woman who launches herself to the moon, you know, w- with her clothes to these two little kids who are clearly not terribly interested in in the story being told. But like I said, this this centers them even more. Like Song of the South feels like it's a story about a kid, but told from an adult perspective. And this this feels like a movie told from a kid's perspective. And I think what I like about the relationship between Jeremiah and his grandmother is that she is she's aware of the things she needs to teach him in order for him to become like a successful adult in this time period. But she does value his childhood as an important part of his existence. And I think, again, that that all ties into the way that Walt felt about Marceline. And Walt had a tough relationship with his father. And I'm sure, you know, strictness was was part of that. And adult Walt obviously values a good work ethic and free market capitalism. (laughs) But, you know, and and I think I think he's showing here that like, yes, you deserve to have a childhood where you don't have to worry about these things. But the adults in your life should still be sort of setting you up and teaching you some of these lessons that are going to later be important to your life. I have a few more things to say about Marceline, but just going back into the movie for a second, I kind of love the the guy at like the general store 
who's like, yeah, if you can find honey, I'll, I'll pay you good for it. And there's another adult that comes up to him after the kids leave. And he's like, do you feel bad for like sending them on a fool's errand? And he's like, nah, kids have nothing but time. They'll view it as an adventure, which is just kind of so rude, but also kind of true about <laughs> childhood and how all of that works. And yet the story kind of tells us that like, even people who are really, they don't believe that this is going to work. Childhood has a magic of its own that, you know, mm -hmm. Jeremiah did find the beehive and got just an absurd amount of honey, apparently. I mean, it looked like he was just being paid after paid after paid. So childhood is, is a place where you're taught work ethic, but you view it as fun, I guess, which kind of ties into the idea, I think a lot of people think will be their experience if they like work at Disney parks or work on Disney movies that like find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life is kind of the vibes that this movie gives off that Jeremiah will work hard he will do what it takes but it's all going to be fun for him because it's all you know him just going on adventures kind of what labor there is is a labor of love but otherwise it's you know it and because of the way the story is told where it's, it's kind of this future Jeremiah telling us in flashback about his childhood it does feel like th those kinds of stories like it has it feels different from like a tom sawyer story where like tom sawyer is a, is a kid and he's doing these things and and whatever and it has that similar sense of like a normal mundane thing becomes an adventure in the mind of a kid but this adds the element of sort of that self-mythology that walt is also doing here where like like I, I can I can easily imagine Walt being like, let me tell you about the time my sister and I found these beehives and like we made all this money from the honey and you know we used that to throw a birthday party or you know whatever whatever it was like I can I can imagine Walt characterizing stories like that from his childhood as adventures and trying to bring that sense of adventure to this movie and all the other movies that we're going to be talking about that get made especially in this period when they're doing a lot of a lot of adventure type movies, I feel like, and a lot of movies featuring child characters. Yeah, I think that you kind of see the the real development of maybe the Peter Pan of it all. You're seeing the eternal childhood. What would happen if I could return to this happy, pleasant time, you know, when I was six? I think that we see that through a lot of kind of the upcoming films and a lot of the ones that become famous, although this one obviously isn't isn't one of the more famous ones where we're seeing this kind of repeat image of the beauty and the perfection of childhood and how great it would be if only adults could feel that same sense of wonder and belief that anything is possible. Uncle Hiram, for instance, in this one, I think really has kind of the like, yeah, he's an adult, but he still thinks like a kid, so he's fine. Whereas Granny is an adult and you kind of see that that playing off of each other. It's also very funny because I was like, oh, Burl Ives is basically doing a white version of Uncle Remus. <laughs> In some sense, you know, I think James Baskett's performance is actually a little bit, just a little bit more interesting in part because of the, all the stuff around it, you know, and he's clearly doing his best. Yeah, I obviously am very familiar with Burl Ives from watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer every year. And then, like, later on hearing some of his music. And there's, there's a few other movies I've seen him in, you know, as an adult, especially. He's in a, f a few westerns. The East of Eden adaptation, which I actually haven't seen. 
but he's also in he's in a few more Disney movies. The one I always think of him in is actually The Big Country, which is a 1958 Western by William Wyler that also has Gregory Peck in it, Carlton Heston, and a few other actors. It's like a almost three hour epic, but it's it's a really good movie. And the first time I watched that, I think it was the first time I'd seen Burl Ives in anything other than him as a snowman in Rudolph. But he has such a unique sort of voice and such a kindly presence that like his casting here makes total sense. Just to kind of close on Marceline just a little bit, those of you who are listening might still be a little skeptical, you know, as much as Walt said, you know, this was the most important thing. Would he really like base adult decisions on this ideal childhood? And the answer is absolutely yes. Because he continued to for the rest of his life. His birth family, his married family, all of them were really deeply connected with Marceline in adulthood. For instance, when Walt and Roy essentially said, hey, mom, dad, we have money now for your 50th anniversary. We'll send you anywhere in the world. And they chose to go to Marceline, Missouri, which, you know, I, it's, it's a great story. There are better options. Go somewhere. Go somewhere more exotic or more more different in in my perspective but disney continued to tell the whole world that marceline was the best place in the world he took his family his wife and his children there and in 1956 he even went back bought his childhood home and farm and decided to essentially create a living history theme park which was tentatively called the marceline project And it was just going to be this idea that they were going to show how life used to be and how to work the land and how to have this happy, carefree, non, I don't want to say non-modern, but pre-war leisure that Walt believed Marceline was. So he really did spend the rest of his life kind of going back to Marceline, trying to build it up. Unfortunately, he passed away just after he got kind of the Marceline project settled and it never ended up developing. But even the rest of his family, his sister, Ruth, who was younger than him and also had fond memories of Marceline, but not maybe all of the memories, she was a huge part in creating the Walt Disney Hometown Museum, donating a ton of the artifacts that they have there. So it became this thing that for his siblings, for his parents, for his children, Marceline was what Disneyland or Disney World might be to a lot of kids today. I find that detail really interesting. It's also really funny to me that he called it the Marceline Project because at the same time he was working on the Florida Project, which became Walt Disney World and is obviously, I mean, just massive in scale compared to a living a living history farm in a town that has 2,000 people. I assume there's more people that work at Disney World a day than 2000 than the number of people who live in Marceline, Missouri currently. Not to get canceled by any any Midwesterners like Marceline is not close to anywhere. You know, Missouri has Kansas City on one side of the state on the western side and then St. Louis on the eastern side. And Marceline like is just out north between them, not on any of the major interstates or anything. It really is this sort of in some ways it is the the ideal of, of small town America and, you know, especially given the history and the time period and everything that, that 
What I was going to say is it makes sense that Marceline would be the sort of idyllic American small town. And then I realized that my idea of what that is is probably so influenced by Walt Disney's view of Marceline that I don't know that I can even say that it, as a factual statement anymore. There's definitely some like feedback loop when we're looking on this that Disney told us this was perfection, so we do think it is. Kind of the ironic thing to me is that Marceline is still kind of in the middle of nowhere even though it's known as, like, Walt Disney's hometown, if Walt had gotten what he wanted, if he had lived a little longer, what's funny is he probably would have broken it. We actually know that the governor of Missouri was going to put a four-lane highway going straight to Marceline to connect to the Marceline Project. So if they had done that, if Marceline had become in Orlando, it probably wouldn't be Marceline anymore. So ironically enough, Walt's death kind of preserved the Marceline that he loved and remembered. Not saying like, thank goodness, Walt died. It's so interesting, you know, having been to Anaheim and then having been to Orlando. And I've only been in Orlando proper a, a handful of times in the few times I've been to, to Disney World. But like you drive down, it's International Drive in Orlando is where all of the like shopping and chain restaurants and hotels and roadside like you know dinner theater type attractions and things like medieval times i think is there same thing with anaheim if you see all of the little like how built up it is around disneyland especially it's kind of maybe for the best that this didn't come to fruition because it it absolutely would have changed marceline forever and it really would have not made it an authentic small town anymore it would have made it a tourist destination but not you know again like i'm grew up going to the jersey shore and one of the things i like about the jersey shore is that especially within the short towns themselves like there's not a lot of chain, you know, chain restaurants and things like you don't really see there's not like an applebee's on the boardwalk it's still all of these you know locally owned businesses of various sizes that have sort of their presence there and it becomes sort of a ritual and tradition and things but, you know, when you put a Disney attraction somewhere, like, that brings in so much money from outside people who don't have the same sort of care and respect for Marceline. And so, like, in, in some ways, you know, the Disney Museum being there, I guess, gives the town enough of a draw for, you know, sort of diehard Disney fans to go to, but not with the volume so much as to, like, turn the whole town into a tourist trap. In part, Disney having already brought that to Disneyland in the sense that like Marceline's Main Street really inspired Main Street USA, where you walk into Disneyland in California and Magic Kingdom in Florida. That is his idealized sort of version of what a Main Street would actually look like with 10 to 20 times as many people <laughs> at any given time as I've ever been in Marceline at once. But when you go there, you see all of the storefronts, which obviously like, you know, there's like a candy shop and there's, and one of them is now a Starbucks and there's a hot dog stand and there's a, a lot of shops where you can buy all kinds of Disney merchandise. But on Main Street itself, on the outside, it looks very much like that sort of turn of the, uh, turn of the 20th century aesthetic. And you have, you know, an old style double-decker double bus and old style cars going down. You have horse-drawn trolleys. And if you're there early enough in the day, like you can get a chance to ride on one of them and, and ride your way down Main Street through the throngs of people trying to get on Space Mountain as soon as they can. And so the push-pull in the park itself 
is interesting, but I do think it's very telling that the first thing that you see in both of the parks that, that Walt himself was majorly involved with, the first thing you come to is this idyllic... Well, actually, the first thing you hit is the train station, and then you hit this idyllic uh, Americana behind it. And the train station ties into all of it as well, both, mm-hmm. you know, through the movies, through the parks, through Walt's own life. At this point, our listeners may be going, hey, we've been listening for 30 minutes and all we've heard about is five years of Walt Disney's childhood and nothing to do with the movie. But it's it's important context because as much as this movie is not about Marceline, Missouri, it's set in Indiana, it's about Marceline, Missouri. And there's so many influences on on how life goes. I will say the 82 minutes or whatever of this movie, I didn't dislike it, but it's very boring. And I honestly think that our 30 minutes on Marceline is a lot more interesting than at least half of what happens <laughs> in the movie. It's it's a little slower paced. Um, you know, I, I feel like especially especially compared to like kids entertainment today. And so it's not a it's not a tough watch at all, but it was it was like a pleasant, nice time, but one where I was like, okay, I got it. He likes this lamb. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a slower movie, especially than some of the wild Donald Duck chasing women on the beach that we've seen kind of in the same time period. But we'll kind of see that throughout the production, that there was this kind of push and pull between let's make this really fun and exciting and Disney and let's keep this connected to Marceline. We know that this was actually a pretty quick movie by the scale of Disney movies. Walt met with the screenwriter Edwin Justice Mayer in 1945. Then one of his employees, Perce Pierce, went to Indiana in the summer of that same year to basically understand the setting. We also know that Mary Blair visited to basically put together like art and pre-production plans for the film's aesthetic. And filming began spring 1946. So this was all going pretty quickly, especially by kind of the standard of the package period that we kind of see, you know, this came out within three years of them beginning work on it. But a lot of that time was Walt kind of wrestling over how exactly all the pieces fit together. It's such a different timeline from animated films because animation just takes so long for being so labor intensive. And especially if you're working with any kind of reduced workforce compared to the early 40s, it, it just takes a long time. So Dear to My Heart was directed by Harold Schuster, who was selected in part because he had previously directed My Friend Flicka in 1943, which was a favorite of Disney and his wife and daughters. And when I looked up the synopsis for my friend Flicka, which I have not seen, I was like, oh, yes, this is the right guy for for this movie, because my friend Flicka is about a 10 year old named Ken McLaughlin, uh, who lives with his family on a remote Wyoming ranch. When Ken returns home from school with failing grades, his father blames the boy's lack of personal responsibility. At the suggestion of his wife, Ken's father allows him to choose a single colt from the herd to raise as his own. Much to his father's dismay, Ken chooses a fiery Mustang, uh, but the two soon become fast friends. And I was like, oh yeah, this is basically, this is the, everything in So Dear to My Heart is basically called out in that, in that synopsis. The classic underdog kid with animal film. There's no rule that says a dog can't play basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I think Walt would very much appreciate Airbud. He would just set it in a more rural setting. 
I mean, we will eventually be talking about Airbud on this podcast, just so <laughs> just so you and our listeners are aware. And I would definitely love to speculate about how Walt would feel about Airbud. I am so excited for that. I have thoughts on how he would feel about the first one, and I think he would be infuriated by the endless sequels that they made out of Airbud. Because as we all know, you can't top pigs with pigs. Exactly. I I concur. So, like I said, although it might have been inspired by Marceline, this was supposedly set in Indiana, but they actually decided to just film it in California. They decided that Indiana just didn't have the best conditions and that there were good enough places closer to home. So the filming began on April 30th, 1946 in Sequoia National Park and the San Joaquin Valley, California. It finished in August of that same year. And then we kind of get into this push and pull that we start to see kind of throughout the production. They filmed it in this tight little moment of 1946. And then they did more filming in February of 1947 through March of that same year. And then, you know, they did other filming at a different period in 1946. So they just kind of kept refilming and, and moving locations to try and get little bits and pieces to change slightly, which kind of keeps happening throughout the production of this film. And so the final credits list the screenplay by John Tucker Battle. He goes on to write Invaders from Mars in 1953, but it also mentions adaptation work by Maurice Raff and Ted Sears. Uh, Ted Sears, we've talked about a few times in the show. He's the guy that invented storyboards for the Three Little Pigs way back when. So we can see how people stay at Disney and and kind of slide into different roles and and take on different things depending on what the project is, which I think is one of the the interesting things about working there, uh, especially in this time period. Schuster told historian Leonard Malton that they found an old, he's like, I mean old, hardware store near the town of Porterville. Uh, It was closed and the various wares inside were bought lock, stock, and barrel and moved into the store that's the, the set that was built for the film. Both the barn and granny's house were built on location as well. The railroad station featured in the film was already at where they were filming, so they just used that as well as the railroad tracks. The engine and the rail cars featured in the film were rented from Paramount, and they'd been previously used in the movie Union Pacific, uh, which came out in 1939. Walt's involvement, I think, was more on the conceptual level or just giving feedback overall, but you get the sense that he was very involved with the like ideas and how that he wanted this movie done, but then was actually fairly hands-off when it came to the filming itself. Like He wasn't trying to boss Schuster around and tell him what shots to get or where to put the camera. It was it seems like a rare time where Walt knew what his, his limits were <laughs> in terms of his expertise and actually let someone really kind of do their job without interfering all too often. He was definitely present for the the train shooting as well. I think just, again, he just enjoyed being around trains. But again, Schuster speaking to Malton said, quote, Walt would come up sometimes on weekends. We would have Sunday breakfast and talk over the rushes. He was a very enthusiastic gentleman and enjoyed to be around. His suggestions were always presented as suggestions only. He left the reins firmly in my hands. I think it's interesting, again, just to see this sort of contrast in Walt where he is not sort of orchestrating this whole thing. He's very involved in the shoot, but he's being respectful of the director and doing their job. And then as we move into post-production, 
he rearranges and reworks the entire film multiple times. <laughs> so he can't help himself, but he at least <laughs> is showing respect face-to-face with the director. In our next episode, where we'll be talking about the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, there is a fantastic quote that basically said, like, Walt had this innate sense for what was right and what wasn't. And multiple films were postponed because he would just watch it and he's like, almost there and just he didn't necessarily have the expertise to figure out exactly what needed to be done but he was at least kind of the the overseer of rightness by the end of it he wanted things to feel correct to himself and that was that was a bit of a tricky line that many of the people at disney have talked about like everything was going well we were almost done and then walt just went Let's play with it, which we definitely see in the year he took with post-production on this film. It's amazing how many Walt Disney stories or Steve Jobs stories you can swap the names in and they still kind of make sense. (laughs) I feel like they have very similar personalities and approaches where like they're not necessarily like the most creative person or the, you know, like. I think it's Jobs that has the quote about like, I, he's like the conductor. He's like, I play the orchestra. And he talks about like wanting all the people who work for him to play to their strengths and, and do that. And he brings out the best in them. Whether or not those people agree with his methods for doing so is a different, is not, a, not his concern <laughs> to care about apparently. But I get similar vibes from Walt where he's like, you know, I need gags and like, you're my best gag man. So like, let's figure this out or, but you know, whatever the problem he's trying to solve is. But you know, I, I I find that very similar where he watches the thing and he's like, yeah, it's not it's not quite there. I don't know what it needs. Let's figure out some ideas. And then he eventually will be like, ah, oh, yeah, that's the thing it needs. I think they both have relatively similar track records and success where like we just don't really talk about their failures all that much. And then we talk about their successes constantly. <laughs> that's That's a fair comparison. And I think both of them kind of have the same like, mythic disney or obviously jobs doesn't have the disney legend but company legends where we we have 15 stories for every major decision uh Mm -hmm. which is one of the things we see with this film that basically it was intended to be live action walt wanted a fully live action movie and at some point they added the animation and there's at least two legends for this movie that kind of go into like what happened to get animation in it A lot of people say that essentially RKO demanded that Walt put animation into it, basically saying you can't sell a Disney movie that's live action, so we're not going to bother. Other people say that Walt came to it himself after spending, you know, six months fiddling with the footage going, it's not there, I need to figure it out. We do have, according to an article from Mouse Planet, we have some information about the scripts. In theory, if they're right, The early scripts, going back to 1945, had no animation. But by 1946, there were at least ideas that there would be animation. And then by June 30th, 1946, the LA Times said that the movie would be, quote, about 90% live action. Walt will resort to cartoons only when nature can't provide his needs. So it kind of became this this mythic thing where either he was forced to do it or he decided to, but animation became his way to 
to push it across that finish line and really get it to the place he wanted to see it at. As we have talked about with Song of the South and with Melody Time and earlier in this episode, Bobby Driscoll and Luann Patton, who were, you know, in Walt's very small company of players under signed contract, are also the basically the stars of this movie. So Bobby Driscoll was 12 at the time of release, but he would have been, you know, closer to nine or 10, you know, roughly Walt's age. Uh, when he left Marceline during the filming of this, and when he was asked about his secret to acting, he replied, I just try to live the part, which I think as a child actor is your job, basically. <laughs> Luana Patton, on the other hand, uh, said that she and Sharon Disney used to hide from the film crew for fun. She and Bobby and Sharon played by a huge dam while they were filming, catching polywogs, and had a lot of fun. But then when they returned to set, everybody was quote, so cross with us that we never did it again. And this was the last role that she would be in for 10 years, giving her cha- herself a chance to, I guess, you know, grow up and, you know, have, have a life outside of shooting films for Disney. So this is probably the last time that we will talk about her. But I think despite some ambiguity as to who her character actually is and how she relates to the rest of the characters in this movie, Definitely. I think she... Yeah, I think she does. I think she does a really good job. And she's a very cute kid. And it's been it's actually been interesting, I think, seeing the two of them in these three movies back to back and sort of seeing a little bit more of them. Uh, Bobby Driscoll will be talking about again when we get to Treasure Island and Peter Pan. But this was also one of his last uh, projects for Disney. In addition, it was the final film appearance of Harry Carey, who had a illustrious career going back to the silent era, especially in Westerns. He had previously starred alongside Buela Bondi in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and The Shepherd of the Hills. And he's just a very storied figure. And he's definitely like a, a gravitas add to this. He had worked with you know, John Ford and a bunch of other very famous directors like Frank Capra uh, over the course of his career. And this ended up being his final film appearance. You know, according to D23, Wela Bondi learned to plow a field, spin wool, and work a loom to play the role of Jeremiah's grandmother. And so, you know, it, it it's always, I always like when they're like, an actor is like, I learned these particular skills. And, you know, for like an action movie, it's like, I learned how to throw knives and jump out of a moving car. And She's like, I learned how to plow a field and spin wool, you know. So to be it's- fair, I know how to spin. And although it's a very basic, like, technique, it's very hard to do well. So those strategies or those skills might be a lot harder than we think they are, even harder than, you know, jumping off of buildings at some points. Oh, that is not me trying to downplay her potential skill set. I just think it's funny that she was in this, like, very sweet movie and like still had to learn specific skills to act in the movie convincingly. And overall, I think she does a good job. I find her to be a really nice mix of sort of warm and stern in her performance. Yeah, I think that the actors in this movie are actually, I mean, it's a bit of a slow movie. It's a bit cheesy, but most movies with predominantly child actors are. I think they all do a pretty good job. They all fill their roles really well. I will just to quickly correct you, Luanna Patton, we are going to talk about one more time. Oh. After she quit acting for 10 years, she came back and she did one more film for Disney. So we will bring her back again in 1957's Johnny Tremaine. Which I have not seen. So I'm very eager to see what 1957 aged 
line of hat is up to. So I I look forward to that. Now I have something to look forward to with Johnny Tremaine. <laughs> All I want to know is if there's any connection between Johnny Tremaine and Lady Tremaine from, you know, Cinderella and such. I'm not sure, but we we will certainly do that research and figure it out. <laughs> As with many Disney movies, both back then and now, the songs are a big part of the, the film. The title song uh, was actually issued three times prior to the movie's release. Uh, Dinah Shore, Peggy Lee, and Ann Vincent all doing their own versions, none of which apparently were very successful. Lavender Blue became the sort of quote-unquote breakout song of this movie. Songwriters Elliot Daniel and Larry Morey had adapted a English folk ballad, you know, into this sort of country-esque folk song. And while it's not very quote-unquote original, it was a very good fit for Burl Ives, who was known more as a singer. I think this is one of his very first acting roles. That record was also put out a few times before the movie was released. Uh, Dinah Shore sang it. Sammy Kay and his Swing and Sway Orchestra and the vocal group, the Cadets, all, all part of the illustrious Sammy Kay organization, <laughs> apparently, did a version. And then there was a semi-swing version uh, by Jack Smith and the Clark Sisters that was put out by Capitol. And then Ann Vincent also did a version of Lavender Bloom, which did go on to get nominated for a Best Original Song Academy Award. But it did not win. It lost out to Baby It's Cold Outside from Neptune's Daughter, which an Esther Williams movie, which means there's probably a lot of swimming in it. But <laughs> uh, beyond the title, you know, she was kind of known for her swimming on camera. I did not know that Baby It's Cold Outside was an Oscar winner. And I, like, I did, just did not know it was from a movie. I thought it was just like, you know, one of those songs. It just didn't, you know, part of the culture. You know, I know there's controversy over Baby It's Cold Outside. I really like the song. I think that it definitely, in my opinion at least, is is better than Lavender Blue and, and kind of deserved that win. But I, I actually haven't seen it in the context of the movie, and it would be interesting to see how that factors into some of the controversy over, you know, is this about being coerced into sex or is this, you know, kind of empowering to women? it certainly hasn't had the same lasting uh, lavender blue certainly hasn't had the same kind of lasting attention and controversy i completely agree with you I, with everything that you just said i'm a i'm pro baby it's cold outside i now would also like to see this movie i've seen i've seen two esther williams movies and i remember enjoying them both pretty well there's one where i'm trying to remember what the i think it's dangerous when wet she has a sequence where she actually swims with Tom and Jerry, the uh, animated characters, which is which is really fun to see, you know, a non-Disney studio doing that in the 50s. Mm -hmm. So Esther Williams, worth checking out. <laughs> but yeah, no, I agree with you. At least in the movie, uh, Lavender Blue is definitely the, the better song. And it's not surprising that Lavender Blue was the one that was at least nominated for an Academy Award. But I also agree that Baby It's Cold Outside is a much better song. So as we're kind of moving from the production era to the release, we see kind of some really interesting things. It's kind of complicated about when the premiere is. Its world premiere was in Chicago, which is actually where Walt was born. So tying back into Walt's childhood again. It was premiered on November 29th, 1948. That being said, technically speaking, its official premiere was January 19th, 1949 in West Lafayette, Indiana. 
Internet seems to be confused about whether 1948 or 1949 should count as the year for this movie, but it kind of had, uh, I guess, an extended release, depending on where you were in the country and the world. It's almost surprised that they didn't have the premiere in Marceline, but I guess that would have been a little too on the nose for a while. (laughs) (laughs) He also spent three weeks attending various premieres and reading about the release and the circumstances around it, you really do get the sense that this was like one of Walt's babies and a very important project to him. And, you know, it, it's definitely, I don't want to say like there's like a desperation, but the, the, it, it's definitely a movie he really wanted people to like. I think especially after Song of the South sort of underperforms and, you know, he's trying this new new thing of essentially doing a live action movie with a little bit of animation in it. You know, it really does some things for the future of the company. I think that there's kind of three things going on there. Number one, it's Walt's baby. He wants to see it thrive. Number two, this whole era, even as we get to some of the kind of better done movies, Walt's just scrounging for money to be able to return his Snow White glory. Uh, But I also think we're seeing the rise of Walt as celebrity which is definitely going to be super important as we're going through the next 10 years or so. But this movie, I believe the one or two before it, we really see Walt going on these publicity tours. And at this point, he's done the South America tour. He's done a tour of Europe. He's kind of making himself not just a household name by studio, but by himself, which is going to be super important once he kind of is the figurehead of the Disneyland show. Yeah, so I think at this point, Walt was really kind of cultivating himself and this really kind of public social persona of, you know, kind of a a P.T. Barnum of sorts. He is the the ringleader, the the head of this kind of magical circus, where previously, although he might have kind of been seen as that at the company where he could, you know, tell a story and transfix everyone with just his storytelling. Previously, he was pretty, pretty restrained. He, he worked at the company, but then once it was out, it was on to the next project. I think we're fi- finally kind of starting to see him come into himself and really bring out that public persona that's going to become really important in those next few years. I completely agree. And I think it's, it's really interesting that we've sort of seen Beyond Mickey, you know, Jiminy Cricket starts to kind of reoccur as a character. Obviously, Tinkerbell becomes very iconic and associated with the Disney company. And I think Walt starts to become a character around this time, especially as we get into the 50s. So Dear to My Heart wasn't the only Bobby Driscoll movie released in 1949. Howard Hughes also had made The Window, which was a noir film in which Bobby Driscoll was the second was second build. That had also been on the shelf for a little while because Howard Hughes is going to Howard Hughes. <laughs> but both of them were ended up being released in 1949 and were big enough hits where Bobby Driscoll was awarded an honorary juvenile Oscar for both movies in the spring of 1950. The film made $2,775,000 roughly, with the vast majority of that coming from the U.S. and Canada, in part to sort of explain why the reviews for this were like not the best, even though Leonard Malton clearly likes this movie based on what he's written about it. But he says the film's only problem was one of timing coming as it did at the end of a cycle of Hollywood films based on turn of the century nostalgia, Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, State Fair, Centennial Summer, etc., which was actually noted by a lot of the reviews at the time. 
just speaking briefly on that, I've seen Meet Me in St. St. Louis. I've seen a production, a stage production of State Fair, actually. I did not realize that that all of these sort of, that there was this kind of moment of like, current, like 1900s, 1910s nostalgia at this time, the way that, again, like I alluded to earlier, that we have sort of like 80s nostalgia that comes around and 90s nostalgia and sometimes 60s nostalgia. It's just interesting that that actually was a trend in and of itself. Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis is a great movie. The songs are also better than this one, but <laughs> it is interesting that Walt is maybe chasing trends a little bit because we talked about Song of the South being, you know, sort of a, a, a way to attempt to cash in on the popularity of Gone with the Wind, even though World War II kind of happened in between and very much ruined that plan for Disney. It is interesting. Like, I, I, I don't know offhand, but I'd be curious to go back and look to see if all of these were in production at the same time, or if like, if Meet Me in St. Louis came out and Walt was like, oh yes, like, here's a, here's a, we can make our own version of that, you know, and, and do it really well. The other kind of drawback that, or challenge that So Dear to My Heart had, according to Malton, is that it wasn't as easy of a film to sell or market as a lot of the previous ones. There weren't like cute animated characters to build up or famous source material like the the book was popular but it was like a kid's picture book you know it didn't have the pedigree of even the the Br'er Rabbit tales had when it came to Song of the South or everyone knows the story of Snow White like there's there wasn't the sort of familiarity for them to draw on which again I think is part of the reason all the projects that we'll be talking about in our upcoming season are what they are because I feel like Disney started to recognize that like, oh, if people are familiar already with the idea of the thing, it's much easier to convince them to see a movie about it. But according to Malden, quote, it's simple story, simply told, made it less marketable than Song of the South. And as a result, it never made as much money in its initial release or in reissue as many other Disney features. But it was a source of personal satisfaction for Disney. He told one report reporter, so dear to my heart was especially close to me. Why, that's the life my brother and I grew up with as kids out in Missouri. The great racehorse Dan Patch was a hero to us. We had Dan Patch's grandson on my father's farm. Another reason for changing some of the details from the original book to sort of more closely match Walt's own life experience. Obviously, that's kind of the, the quote that justifies us spending 30 minutes on Marceline, but it really draws in Walt's love for all of it, and a little bit of Roy. We haven't talked about Roy much lately. Uh, we're going to in the next few episodes. Roy was also part of this and also had kind of this fondness. So even though this movie was definitely a Walt pet project, I think we kind of see that for the whole Disney family, it was that kind of nostalgic force. So both because of this movie and just kind of the general post-war movies, Walt started getting in some trouble. So the Bank of America started pressuring Walt to finally start paying back his debts. He wasn't necessarily building more debt on these movies, but he wasn't able to pay off his debt from some of the earlier flops either. And because of that, he mandated some new rules that are going to fundamentally change how Disney worked. And I know we've talked about that a lot. We've talked about how the strike changed things, and it absolutely did. But at this point, we see Walt kind of for the first time putting the pressure on being the money man instead of kind of giving that responsibility fully to Roy. And we see the instatement of some new rules. These rules, according to Walt Disney and American Original, were a 34% reduction in payroll moving forward, because that's not going to irritate everyone. 
stricter production schedules. We're going to see that things are actually being turned out a lot faster, but also we're going to see much more of a rise in live action to make that possible. The budget had to be kept in mind. They would look at the projections for earnings and make sure that the budget was at or lower than that. Stories needed to be solidified before production began, whereas in the past they would often do a lot of animation when they hadn't fully figured it out. They were also going to find new ways to sell their pre-existing properties. We'll see a lot of that. That's very much kind of a rule that stuck with Disney. And then finally, just preventing unnecessary expenses. So this became kind of a thing where we see Disney really strip it back and say, until we get another Snow White, we can't be the playful company we were in our first five years which also was a big kind of impetus towards Walt going forward with his plans for his new Snow White, which we're going to be exploring in a few episodes, which was, of course, the classic Cinderella. So this movie has, I think, more of a legacy than I certainly realized. (laughs) You know, I think there are, like we both said at the top, this was not a movie that we were like super aware of. But it's certainly one that the Disney company has really kind of taken hold on. I think because of Walt's love has sort of, you know, made it one where the Disney company does sort of take this movie kind of seriously in their own way, even though, again, it's weirdly not on Disney+. Plus. Walt, out of this, sort of developed a hobby of creating miniatures. And the first one that he ever did was Granny Kincaid's Cabin based on this movie. It was intended to be part of a eventual traveling exhibit, but Walt had to give up on it to focus his time and money on, you know, the Disneyland project. He did end up displaying Granny Kincaid's Cabin at the Festival of California Living in 1952 in Los Angeles. And the model is actually on display in Florida at Disney's Hollywood Studios at the Walt Disney Presents exhibit. So I have definitely walked by this model. The next time I'm there, I will definitely make time to go and make sure I see it and take some pictures. But I think that is really fascinating that, again, it does have a presence. Technically, So Dear to My Heart has a bigger presence in the Disney theme parks than Bambi, which is just wild when you think about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's really wild. One of my favorite facts about this is it's not only a presence in Disney, but it actually overwrote the original book which was fairly popular. Like we said, it wasn't exactly like the biggest book ever, but it was fairly popular in its original form, which you almost can't find anymore. In 1948, Sterling North ended up rewriting and republishing Midnight and Jeremiah under the name So Dear to My Heart, which included the changes to the plot that Walt made. So not only is this kind of cherished part of Disney history, but it actually ended up completely overwhelming its original book. Um, A lot of times we'll see, you know, the the movie adaptations on the cover, or there'll be a little interview about it in the back of the book. It's pretty rare to see them completely erase the original book to kind of put in somebody else's version. But that's what we see with Sterling North in this specific instance. We also saw in 1950 that Simon & Schuster released a 126-page golden storybook of the film, which had text by Helen Palmer and illustrations by Bill Peet, who goes on to be very, very big with illustrations. So it kind of becomes, at least in the short term, 
this like cultural force both in the Disney world and the literary world. I'm just going to say Midnight and Jeremiah, I think is a much better title than So Dear to My Heart. And I feel like if I feel like that title is a hard sell, especially for audiences at any point after the 1940s, like it just is not a movie like as a kid if someone's like do you want to watch like so dear to my heart or do you want to watch the lion king and i'm like <laughs> yeah lion king every time you know it's where at least like midnight and jeremiah sounds interesting like you know ooh, what's this midnight about i don't know mm-hmm. it certainly fits the movie and especially the, the very sort of saccharine tone of the movie but it's just it's not a sexy title whatsoever and you know but other parts of this movie do live on especially the sets the train depot in the film was later relocated to Ward Kimball's Grizzly Flats Railroad, which we will definitely be talking more about Ward Kimball and his love of trains, which becomes Walt's love of trains. So, M- Megan, you have a story about the about the depot, about Grizzly Flats. I found so many stories in this. I didn't even put them in the notes necessarily, but I, I love them. I wanted to just share this one really quickly. So the train depot was given to Ward Kimball because he had kind of gotten Walt into trains, like he said. But it wasn't exactly, how do I put this? It wasn't exactly a consensual donation. Walt had it dismantled and then just delivered all the pieces in Ward Kimball's like backyard. He did not know about it in advance. This was not something that he was like, hey, can I have that? Walt was like, oh, I know who's going to really like this and just had it dropped off. This was definitely like an Ikea situation. They did not know how to put it back together. Apparently it took like three years to construct this. And, you know, Ward Kimball never actually told Walt that. Because, you know, this was such a sweet grand gesture. Like, why, why would I, you know, insult it? But then several years later, Walt requested it back to be able to put it in Disneyland. And at that point, he finally told him, like, dude, this has been expensive, time-consuming. This has been a pain in the ass. I am keeping this train. That's really funny. The history of the train station or the train depot doesn't doesn't actually stop there. So one, they do build the Frontierland station in Disneyland is actually also modeled on the one in this movie because Walt couldn't move it himself. So they just sort of replicated a version of it. And then after Ward Kimball's railroad closed, John Lasseter actually relocated to the Jesse Creek railway, which is his private railroad at the Lasseter winery, which like there's so many times, this is one of them where I just hate that John Lasseter is a terrible person because he has done actually a lot to preserve some of that kind of Disney history in his own way. But obviously, like I said, just a a terrible, terrible person that unfortunately we have to talk about from time to time. The barn in this movie was actually designed to mimic the Disney family barn in Marceline and then becomes the inspiration for Disney's workshop at his house in the 50s, which was called Woking Way House. So again, there's a lot of things built in here. You know, we talked about the nostalgia running through this and like you... There's no better word to describe so dear to my heart than nostalgia. Beyond its re-release later on in 1964, it was actually shown during the first season of the Disneyland TV show. In 1964, it earned uh, about a million and a half dollars on its re-release. It was put out on home video in 1986, and then in 92 and 94. It was originally planned for a DVD release, but was canceled for some reason. 
It finally was released on DVD in the U.S. in July 2008 as a Disney Movie Club exclusive, which is a copy that uh, the the version I watched. It has yet to appear on Disney Plus. No reasons been given. I don't know that anyone's ever been asked about it. Like I know, you know, we mentioned in our Song of the South episode that Bob Iger has been repeatedly asked about the status of that movie. I don't know that anybody in particular is so passionate about so dear to my heart as to demand it being added to Disney plus, but I would, I would like to see it be there, especially with its connections to Walt personally. You could see, you know, a Disney family petition for it would seem to make sense or because it's the hundredth anniversary this year, you know, seeing, even if they didn't put it up, putting a documentary up they've had many other documentaries about the making of some of these movies doing one about i I don't want disney to put out basically our episode but with their name because then nobody will listen to us but i i think there's definitely some arguments for that as far as like the actual you know continuation of it it worked much better structurally than it did necessarily as a film Uh, Lavender Blue had a revival in autumn of 1959 when Sammy Turner had a hit single with a version of it. But other than that, it kind of hasn't really stuck around. We have about three arguments for kind of why it's not a good movie or why it doesn't hold up. So I'll just kind of go through the first one first. This is a critique from John Tucker Battle from Pop Optic. And I just, I loved it. So I'm going to read it wholesale. So he said, who is Tildy? Well, she's a girl in town that Jeremiah plays with. Or she's Jeremiah's sister. Or she's Jeremiah's cousin. Or she's, you can see the problem. Unless I manage to miss a bit of exposition or detail from any of the plot summaries that I hunted down, I have no idea who Tildy is and what her relationship is to the rest of the characters. This is a big thing with Tildy. You know, we had to have Luanna Patton. I have no idea who she's supposed to be. I don't really understand his family in general because his uncle seems to have the hots for his grandma. There's all sorts of layers (laughs) of confusing family dynamics going on in this film. You know, one of the other things that I was, I one, did not expect, and two, was a little, like, almost taken back with, but not surprised from the time period. It's rare that you watch a movie and all of a sudden you randomly run into Christopher Columbus. (laughs) Uh, And, like, I was expecting the stories that were going to be told to be, like, you know, these sort of, like, fables, you know, like we saw in, like, the Silly Symphonies or these little, like, folk tales about, like, you know, the little engine that could or, like, the tortoise and the hare, like... You know, those kinds of like animal stories that would teach Jeremiah a a moral lesson. I did not expect the owl to use the illustrated example of Christopher Columbus. (laughs) Pointed out in our notes that Columbus Day became a holiday in 1934. So it it may have been more topical (laughs) than we think of it now. But obviously Christopher Columbus, one of history's worst people. And so... I don't know that his reputation is so bad among so many that it would preclude Disney from putting on this. I mean, they'd certainly have to put some kind of unskippable content warning in front of this one too, as weird as, as weird as that is to imagine on first glance. But I really, you know, I was not expecting Christopher Columbus. I was not expecting William Wallace to be mentioned. And I was like, oh yeah, the Braveheart guy, uh, apparently inspired by a spider web. Like, these are not necessarily role models that I would choose for a young kid raising a sheep. 
like I said, beyond the genocide committed by Christopher Columbus, I just, I don't see how he's necessarily a role model because, you know, as this film incorrectly points out, Columbus was not unique in thinking the world was flat. Most people thought the world was round when he sailed. They just didn't think there was anything in between and that you would basically run out of food and water before you hit hit East Asia. Columbus, again, maybe one of the luckiest and most vile people that's ever lived. And I did not realize there was a Disney movie in which we got an animated Christopher Columbus. Historically speaking, he was put on trial for his crimes in his own time period. So he's not even one of those figures we can just be like, oh, you know, he, he was he was a hero of the time because he, he wasn't. But I, I guess there might have been some merit to essentially Columbus Day had just been invented. So we have to we have to bump him up. It's yeah, I, I don't think it was the best choice either. The black sheep, uh, I guess, archetype, I'll say, or or common phrasing even has been called into question recently and in regards to in, in regards to race, you know, and I think there's definitely some sensitivity around that now that there wasn't certainly wasn't at the end. Uh, Tildy also gets a statue of an indigenous American as a prize at the fair, which, again, makes sense for both the time period the movie was made and especially the setting of the movie itself. But, you know, doesn't really hold up. Lavender Blue was actually the first hit for Burl Ives. Uh, it hit six, number 16 on the U.S. charts. And then from there, his career really starts to take off, kind of hitting its peak, I would say, in the 60s. But he sort of becomes a, a cultural figure. And, you know, of course, both his version of Rudolph and especially Holly Jolly Christmas from the animated Rudolph repeatedly chart uh, every holiday season, uh, at least here in the United States. So he's... Burl Ives is definitely one of those people that I just associate with Christmas, sort of like Bing Crosby. And then like I'll come across him in a non-Christmas context and be like surprised that he exists the other 11 months of the year. But like I said, it was very nice to see him do a, a, a his own version, I will say to his credit, of the James Basket Song of the South role. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting to kind of trace the actors in this movie. Because while this wasn't necessarily a huge hit, we see kind of, you know, our, our Disney famous kids... Like you said, we've got, you know, the very kind of interesting things that are going on with it's the last appearance of Harry Carey. Obviously, we are seeing the star be born to some extent on Burl Ives. One of my favorite facts, Beulah Bondi was perfectly cast for this. She kind of became typecast as being like an eccentric mother or grandmother, which Ironically enough, she apparently took on her first role as like eccentric old lady when she was like 20, which says a lot about how the entertainment industry views women. But my personal favorite fact is that prior to this film, she actually played the mother of actor James Stewart in four different films of Human Hearts, Vivacious Lady, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and It's a Wonderful Life. And so we kind of just see... All of these figures are fairly prominent either in the world of entertainment or the world of Disney before and then a little bit after this movie. And yet this film is still not really brought up as one that had a spectacular cast or or anything else, despite the fact that it really did have some of those huge players. You know, that's weirdly the film's legacy, like you said before, is more interesting when you learn about the Disney personal context and i think even even watching the movie itself 
you know, for me, this is one where I found it perfectly enjoyable, but not particularly memorable. It's not one that I'm going to excitedly tell people is like a hidden gem of Disney that nobody knows about or try to get people to sit down and, and watch it. It's not that I wouldn't recommend it, but it, there's just nothing. There's just not a lot there in terms of specialness unless you have all of this context. So if you haven't seen the movie and you've listened all the way into this episode, I would definitely recommend checking it out. But it's not one that I'm going to, again, be going out there and, and telling people like, oh, my God, there's this hidden Disney movie that nobody knows about that's like really, really good. Pretty good. It's cute, I would say, overall. <laughs> one thing that I think could be interesting to include this in is something that we brought up in the last episode, which is the introduction of religion to Disney films. This movie had a lot of talk about, you know, Christianity specifically. It's kind of interesting in this continuity of religion meets Disney, where we see Granny Kincaid kind of repeatedly scolding Jeremiah for thinking about the wrong things and praying about the wrong things and loving the idea of Danny more than Danny himself and God and all of that. So we see kind of this punishing lens of religion that then gets kind of played with when Jeremiah, after the sheep has run away, he kind of prays to God and says, if Danny comes back, I won't go to the fair. And so he tells Granny that and everyone's like, we we got the sheep back. It's supposed to be a celebratory moment, but now he chooses to be humble. <laughs> but to me, sounds like a lie. But she says basically, well, Jeremiah, I made a deal with God too, that if the sheep came back, we would go to the fair. So one of us has to break our, our deal with God and I've known him longer. So, you know, we're, we're going to go to the fair. And I, it's a cute moment, but it is really kind of this heavy-handed Christianity is an integral part of being an American and being the good old days of this kind of like rural Americana. Again, it was in Melody Time, which was to do with American, you know, folk tales and folk heroes. And again, I'm just wondering how much of this is the rise of the Cold War how much are we seeing Walt's hatred of communism coming in, in kind of the idea that they're all atheists and America is Christian nation? I think this could be really interesting to research, and I'll be keeping an eye on that in our future movies just to see if this theme continues to pop up. But I think that is kind of the most interesting thing other than Walt's history that comes from this movie, that we see these changes in Walt and in the Walt Disney Corporation, not necessarily that it's a fantastic movie in its own right. I agree. And it'll be interesting to chat to, to track the Christianity throughout the next movies we talk about, because I don't know offhand how much it's going to come back around, but I'll be curious to see. And, you know, I, I will say it didn't jump out as much to me here as it probably did with the animated stuff. Cause it's just weird to see like an animated cross <laughs> at the end mm -hmm. of a, a Disney short that you maybe aren't expecting. Whereas like this felt at least like appropriate to the characters and the time period in a way. I guess the, the last thing I'll say is as we've been going through this, I guess part of my job has been repeatedly like, what are the problematic aspects of this movie, which is extremely depressing. One of the first times that I feel like you would really be justified in just turning this movie on for a kid to watch. 
Like there are definitely some some problematic elements, but I think that they're mostly things that are problematic in context. You know, this is our what our fifteenth Disney movie. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. This is the first time I would just like unquestionably let a child watch the movie. I think maybe this in Snow White, but even with Snow White, I'm like I- I'd probably want to be there as they're watching the movie. I get that, and I think this is definitely one where. I wouldn't blame anybody for turning this movie on for a kid and then going to do something else while they watch it. Again, not not that it was bad, but this is a movie that like on a second watch would definitely put me to sleep if I wasn't fully awake. And if I'm around a small child as someone who is never around small children, I'm likely to just be very tired. <laughs> That's probably a fair point. <laughs> After this episode, we are going to have one more episode of our War and Packages series. So next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we close out our second season by adventuring with the Rapscallions, Mr. Toad, and Ichabod Crane. And like last time, we will do a little bit of discussion of the season as a whole and kind of our thoughts on the package films, the war's influence, and of course, the strike's influence on the growing Disney Corporation. In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela. <laughs>